Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're with us today. And it's my prayer that you will be blessed by God's word. Charles Dickens, in his novel, A Tale of Two Cities, starts out with these famous lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Now, these words of Dickens put forth uh, his main theme in his book, this theme of, of contrast or duality, as these two cities, Paris and, and London, were dealing with great political unrest. The French Revolution was uh, upon it, and, and the atrocities of the aristocracy um, were, were falling. And then, as unbelievable as it is, these citizens uh, revolt, overthrow the government, and then just do things just as bad as the government they replaced. Even in the city of London, there was great upheaval as the backdrop of the American Revolution was behind that. I, I, I say this, this uh, and I lead with this quote from Dickens, because it's this idea of contrast or duality that I'm very interested in this morning. Because if we really think about it, we see so much of this in life in general, and especially in this present age. Now, for example, and just on the physical level, we have a, we're a physical being, we have a body, we have senses, and yet on the other hand, we're a spiritual being, we have a soul. We live in an age uh, that is ever increasingly evil, and yet at the same time, there are remnants of righteousness and good that God does supply to this world. We live in an age where so much is known. We live in an amazing age where knowledge is so available. We know so much. It's out there. Yet at the same time, we live in an age where foolishness abounds and there is great uh, undiscernment in the minds of people. We live in an age where the gap, honestly, between the morality, between biblical Christians and the world is increasing that gap exponentially. I state all this because ultimately you and I cannot serve two kings or two masters. They're diametrically opposed. We cannot love this world system and at the same time love the Lord. And so this morning's sermon is entitled, A Tale of Two Kings. And we will compare and contrast two kings that are set forth in Scripture from the book of Zechariah. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, the second to last book in the Old Testament. And let us look at chapter 9 together. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord reads, The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrat, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, 
The Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ascalon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ascalon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes." Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Father, we come to you, Lord, knowing that you are a God who delights in your word. You are righteous and just. You know where we are at and how we stand in relationship to you this morning. You know our hearts better than we do. Lord, being reminded even this morning singing to you, we are but frail children as dust. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. We change ever so quickly. And so, Lord, even this morning we look to you the God who is immutable, unchanging, the Lord who is steadfast in all of your promises. It's on the basis of your promises, your covenant that you have made with your people, Lord, that we plead our case before you this morning. You have promised to start a good work in us and to bring it to completion Father, be generous to your children. We are in great need to hear from you. We're in a great need to have a deeper repentance and to turn from our wickedness and to turn from our self-reliance and trust in you in a deeper, clearer way so that we may love you with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength. This great battle will continue, Lord, until you take us home. Equip us today to do this. Equip us today to love you deeper, to serve you with all of our energy, to, to renew our minds and to have our eyes pinpointed on you in your glory, in your majesty, as you reign right now. Bless your people, Lord. Not because we deserve it. We are but beggars of your grace. But Lord, you are a gracious, compassionate, merciful, patient Father. Bless us today for your name's sake. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. I break my text into the following three headings. It's a roadmap of where we'll be going this morning. The first heading will be found in verses 1 through 7, and it's entitled, The Earthly King. 
the earthly king, verses 1 through 7. Following that, verses 8 through 10 will bring us to our second point, which is the heavenly king. The heavenly king. Then the third point, which is implied by the text, and it's implied by every text that we encounter. And the heading is this, I call for a decision. I call for a decision. So let's begin. The earthly king. Look at verse 1. It starts out with the phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord. The prophet Zechariah, in this last major section, changes gears. He, he, he ramps it up. According to the first part of the book, he had these visions that were all supposed to bring comfort to the Jewish people in his day. They had just come back from Babylonian captivity. And now, needing more than comfort, Zechariah takes them to the future. He didn't need a DeLorean to do this. He points ahead. And yet, this is not something in as much as he would think would be a, a blessing at first. It would be hard to swallow. But seeing the whole grand picture of it all, it was a blessing. He had to say it. He's a prophet of the Lord. The Lord has spoken and he must proclaim it. And so the word was a burden. The Hebrew word masah, which actually means to take or lift up. And it gives this idea or picture of here is Zechariah taking up and lifting up and putting on himself this burden. It was oftentimes used in the scripture, this word, for a judgment that was coming. It wasn't easy for this man to deliver this message. And so it was a burdensome message, a future judgment that would come. Now as you read Verses 1 through 7, I invite you again to glance through it again. You'll notice that no name is mentioned here. No name is mentioned of a king who would actually accomplish all these things, going through these places and conquering them. Yet, when we look back through what is done through the courses of history, all the Bible commentators that I've read agree. In fact, it is so clear that I have found nobody who disagrees, even out of some of the more liberal scholars. This king that is mentioned here that would go into this place and execute God's judgment on these nations is none other than Alexander the Great or Alexander of Macedon. I want to put him forward as example A. He is the earthly king. A little background on him. He was born in 356 B.C. This was quite a time after uh, Zechariah wrote this book. And he was born in Pella, the city of Macedon. His father was Philip II, the king of that nation, of the Macedonians. And his mother was Olympias. Now, according to legend... And of course, I do not believe this is fact, but to give you a little background information, Plutarch, his biographer, records the story of Alexandria's, Alexander's mother. About the time she was to be pregnant with Alexander, she had this dream of a lightning bolt coming and striking her. The interpretation of the dream was this, that the god Zeus came down and was Alexander's father. This is why later on, after his death, as he was brought and laid to rest in one of the cities that he's conquered, that was uh, named after him, Alexandria in Egypt, why that was a major uh, place for pilgrimages for people to go and worship Alexander because he was regarded himself as a god. Growing up, Alexander was afforded the best things living in the palace. He was, in fact, personally tutored by the philosopher, the 
um, very famous philosopher, Aristotle, all the way up into the age of 16. He had the best education that was afforded in those days by the best teacher available in those days. At the age of 20, Alexander's father died. He was assassinated and he ascended to the throne. So here's this young man, age of 20, ruling over this empire. He rose quickly. But not only that, in the next 13 years, he was a man of war. He began military campaigns that stretched out. He extended his kingdom not just from Greece, but all the way down into the south, into Egypt and northern Africa. And he extended uh, as, far, as far east as the western part of India. He had conquered, by the age of 33, the majority of the known world at that time. I look at my life at 37 and wonder what I've accomplished. As such, Alexander, in his early 30s, had one of the largest empires in the ancient world. He was undefeated in battle. Undefeated. He is considered by all one of, if not the, greatest military commanders of all time. Besides this, because of his conquests, Alexander impacted the world through culture, even extending down to today. He introduced Greek thought and philosophy to the areas that he had conquered. And it's interesting, when you study things, this Greek philosophy or thought, actually, even though Rome would later conquer this area after his death and breakup of his empire, Greek philosophy took over Roman thought. And by the way, Greek philosophy has taken over Western thought. We derive from the same type of thinking that was first spread out into the world by Alexander. So even in our world today, we would have to conclude he's one of the most influential men who has ever lived. He died in Babylon in 323 B.C., about a month before his 33rd birthday. With all that being said, of course the sermon is not about Alexander. But we have to say this and confide and come to the conclusion that when we speak about earthly kings, you can't get much better about what this man actually accomplished in the short time, 13 years. Let us look at the text of Zechariah. In verses 1 through 7, Zechariah prophesies about three stages of Alexander's military campaign before Alexander was even born. The stage one, the first stage, has to do with Syria. We see this in verses 1 through 2. The burden of the Lord was against the land of Hadrach and Damascus. It's its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on all mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders it. After his victories in Asia Minor, Alexander set his sights on King Darius III of Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, the king of that empire. The key battle that was the beginning of the end for Darius and his reign happened at the city of Isus. It was there that Alexander defeated uh, Darius's army, even though he was outnumbered three to one. And in, cap- in victory, he captured Darius's wife, two of his daughters, and even Darius's mother. It was not a good day for his family. 
Now, this is important because after that battle, the door leading into Syria was now open, and Alexander would march his armies into there, and that is what Zechariah has to deal with in this text. He mentions first that the Lord, is a hand, his hand is against the land of Hadrach. This is a village that is also known anciently as Hatakria, which is near Damascus. It is located on the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It is a pretty small city, and this would probably be taken over first before he marches into the major city of Damascus. Damascus, mentioned also here in verse 1, was one of the oldest cities of the world. And it's mentioned in Genesis. It is the capital of the time of the Syrian Empire. A little background, the Syrians were one of Israel's worst enemies as their reign of terror happened from 900 to 721 B.C. These two places would be the first places that the Lord would send Alexander. This great earthly king would ravish through these lands, taking them over very quickly. It was a blitzkrieg. They didn't know what was coming. But we get to an interesting part of the text. We have to stand back. Because Zechariah, or I should better say, the Lord's trying to teach us something here. As great and powerful as as Alexander is, that's nothing in comparison to the Lord. It says, for the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also which borders it. What Alexander the Great was doing in taking over all these cities and his reign of terror and assaulting the Syrian people was ultimately under the sovereign hand of the Lord. It was God's judgment on these people. Now we can see why Zechariah, out of his love for man, saw this as a burden. knowing what Alexander would do and the death tolls that he would pile up and his brutality. It wasn't a pleasant message. Yet he understood and he communicates to us, this is the Lord's will. The Lord used this man. And he used him to judge the people and at the same time used it to send a warning to the nations says that the Lord has an eye on all mankind and then he puts the apple of his eye in sight and on all the tribes of Israel. He was judging the nations. God was using Alexander to judge the nations but at the same time to warn Israel and to protect his people. The Sovereign Lord has throughout history used ungodly men to accomplish His means. Both of judgment and of blessing. God used Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, as we've seen through Habakkuk and also through Jeremiah, to come in and punish and to discipline the Israelites. God even used ungodly kings the blessed such as Cyrus, kings, uh, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. He was used by God to free the Israelites from the Babylonian captivity and allowing them to go back and resettle the promised land as we see this in the opening of Ezra. Ultimately, we need to take into our minds what it says in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, God, turns it wherever He will. So there's stage one. Alexander bringing in brutality and taking over the Syrians. That sets us up for his second stage of battle as we see here in the text. 
The second stage has to do with the, with the city, the Phoenician city of Tyre. Tyre and Sidon are mentioned together, and Sidon was not a big city or an important city. It's only mentioned because it was close to Tyre, which was an important city. He goes on in beginning at the end of verse 2. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart, heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud in the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power of the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Alexander sets his sights on the cities. Sidon would fall very quickly. Tyre is a different story. Why was this happening? Well, verses 2 and 3 kind of give us an indication. It has to do with pride. God opposes the proud. They thought they were very wise. They thought they were unconquerable because of their wisdom and where they built their city and their possessions that they had to even defend their city. They put their trust in man and not in the Lord. Now, a few centuries before Alexander, Tyre actually moved their city from the mainland to an island about a half mile offshore. And so when we look at Tyre throughout history, they had a mainland settlement that was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but then there's this island city of Tyre about a half mile offshore. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered earlier the city, the mainland city. But in 13 years, as some of the people of the mainland city went to the island, Nebuchadnezzar, even in his great army, could not conquer that city. And so they're prideful. Nebuchadnezzar cannot conquer this city. Who does Alexander think he is? This island fortress had a 150-foot wall surrounding the entire island. 150 foot. Straight up and down, and the wall started at the edge of the sea. You couldn't march an army out to it. Besides even that protection of not having a land assault on the city... They had the protection of the Phoenician army, which at that, uh, the Phoenician navy, which at that time was the greatest navy in the world. They thought they were unconquerable. They thought they would just hold up in their little island and wait out Alexander. Verse 4 speaks about Tyre's destruction. Speaking on mankind, it would think, we would think it to be impossible that this city could be taken over, but no. When the Lord decrees something, it will happen. We serve a God who is omnipotent, who will accomplish His will. Alexander earlier had requested supplies from Tyre in his campaign to go against Palestine to outfit his army. When they refused his request and actually killed his messengers... Alexander sought to destroy the city. The destruction of Tyre is actually further evidenced and given in greater detail in the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 26, 1 through 14. I invite you on your own time to read more about that. And it actually gives the idea of what happened. It's, it's kind of confusing because it gives both phases. Both the phase that happened on the mainland city under Nebuchadnezzar, but also the phase that would happen under Alexander the Great and the conquering of the island. Now, how did Alexander conquer the island? And he did it in only seven months, what Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do in 13 years. To do this, what he did was uh, he took the rubble from the mainland city and actually threw it into the sea. He created a, a road, a causeway, and he actually marched catapults and his army out there. At the same time, he also um, got some of the navies of the surrounding nations and had an assault that way, a blockade. And he goes in there and after seven months, they breached the wall go in there and basically kill everybody. 
One historian said that they, they killed about 6,000 men inside the city and then took another 2,000 men and crucified them all on the beach. Alexander wanted to send a message, not to oppose them. That brings us to stage three of his military campaign. And we, we see this played out, right? Think about Tyre. The Lord did strip her of all of her possessions. Walls breached, everything in there plundered, burnt down with fire. In fact, if you look at Ezekiel, it says nobody will rebuild on it. It'll be a desolate place where fishermen will dry their nets. And it happened. And it hasn't been rebuilt. Stage three, Philistia, the Philistines. We see that in verses five through seven. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too shall writhe in anguish. Akron also because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take it away its blood from its mouth and its abomination from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan of Judah and Akron shall be like the Jebusites. The destructions of the Philistines would be so complete by Alexander that of their five major cities, four are mentioned here. Ashkelon, Gaza, Akron, and Ashdod. Only the city, a famous city, the city of Gath, where Goliath was from, is omitted. Look at verse 5. I want to go through this quickly. It says, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Their whole population was destroyed. Great fear entered into that city. Alexander left no one breathing. Gaza, too, shall writhe in anguish. Gaza's population was greatly, greatly reduced. Uh, this was probably the greatest struggle Alexander had in conquering the Philistines, it, but it only took a little over a month in defeating this huge city. Their population greatly decreased after a siege and, and battle. In fact, if you look a little bit further down in verse 5, it says this, the king shall perish from Gaza. Um, history actually records how this happened. They, Alexander took the king, put him and uh, attached him to the back of his chariot and drug him around Gaza until the man was dead in the sight of his people. Akron also, because its hopes are confounded. Akron was the farthest city north. And, and uh, th this kind of gives an, uh, an idea of what they were hoping in. They had expected Tyre to hold out and to defeat Alexander and to buy him some time. And as such, they were ashamed. Their hopes were dashed. They fell very quickly. To Alexander. Look in verse 6. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Ashdod lost its native population in the invasion. Very few were left. In fact, what happens, what it talks about here, this mixed people, is Alexander took people from other parts that he conquered and relocated them in that city. This was his policy to mingle different conquered people together so that these, as these different cultures come together, they're spending most of their time and energy trying to figure each other out and not planning on how they're going to retaliate against Alexander. Verse 7. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from beneath, between its teeth. There's the, the ray of light for the Philistines. In spite of God's judgment, he remembered mercy and grace. His judgment put an end to their idolatry. 
Their idols of Dagon, their God, were destroyed. It says, going further on, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. There wasn't many Philistines left. Those who are left turned to Israel, turned to the Lord. God saved them. And so even in this judgment, here's the crazy thing. It took this judgment to save these people. There was only a remnant, yes, but it was through the harshness of Alexander that these men were saved and women were saved. And again, to summarize this before we get in and look at our second king. King Alexander is the earthly king. I don't say a earthly king. I say the earthly king. There's no one greater what he achieved in his military campaigns. There's no one more influential in the world for such a short time outside of Jesus. The man is remarkable. But we look at his life and we say, It was a life that was dominated by violence and bloodshed. That is how he achieved it all. Second heading. The heavenly king. The heavenly king. It's the point I really wanted to get to preaching. I just had to get seven verses through it to get here. Zechariah turns his attention from a, the great earthly king Alexander to the majestic king of heaven and of earth, who is the king of kings, who's the Lord of lords. I'm speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. In this section, we'll see seven evidences of Jesus' superiority over Alexander. Seven evidences. Let me read this section first before we get into some of the evidences. Then I will encamp, verse 8, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see it with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. First evidence is actually not found in this text, but I mentioned it briefly before, so I won't speak on it much now. We saw it in verse 1. In speaking about the conquering of the Syrian area, notice that ultimately it was the Lord who was in charge. And so the first aspect of why Jesus is superior to any earthly king is that he is absolutely sovereign. Alexander thought he was in control, but he was just a puppet in God's hands. In fact, when you go into the aspect of the city of Tyre and its destruction from Ezekiel, so many times in that verse you will see that the Lord is doing this. Again, God's sovereignty is portrayed over the affairs of of human history from peace to times of war. Jesus' sovereignty is unequaled. Even in calling him Lord, the Greek word kyrios, we're saying he is the sovereign master and ruler over all. And that is why early Christians would not bow the knee and say Caesar is Lord. No, Christ is Lord. His sovereignty is unequaled. Second point, not just his sovereignty sets him apart, but his protection of his people sets him apart over Alexander. We get this from verse 8. 
Most commentators, and I understand why, would put this with the area of Alexander. They're still thinking it's speaking about Alexander. I disagree. Look what it says. I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. This is God speaking. Alexander wanted to go conquer Jerusalem next. To march in and pour out his vengeance upon the Jewish people. In fact, what happens here? God stands as a protector over his people, even though the world is falling all apart around them to these other nations. We can't say for certain how this happened, okay? But I do want to give you this. The historian Josephus recorded an event where Alexander came into Jerusalem. It could just be legend. We can't say it's 100% historically accurate. I don't know. At the same time, I don't want to dismiss it. It very well could have happened this way. His event of this happens, and I'm just going to give a summary. Alexander sent word to the high priest to pay a tribute to him, some money to him. The high priest refused to do so because he was already paying tribute to the Persians, Alexander's enemy. He didn't want to break that alliance with them. And so this infuriated Alexander, and he marched his army towards Jerusalem for battle. As this was happening, the high priest called all of the people of Jerusalem to make sacrifices to the Lord, to fast, and to pray for God to deliver them. Now, according to the Josephus, God instructed the high priest in a dream to welcome Alexander outside the city when he arrived. When Alexander did arrive, the high priest dressed in all of his uh, official garments, his high priestly uh, outfit, even the gold plate that says holy to the Lord, which was around his head. And he had all the other priests dressed in white. They came out to meet Alexander before, they got, before he got to Jerusalem. When Alexander saw the high priest, according to Josephus, he saluted him and honored Israel's God, saying that he had seen in a dream a person like the high priest in a dream that he had while he was still in Macedonia. According to Josephus, Alexander was then shown the book of Daniel, where it prophesied that a Greek king would destroy the Persians, and he believed that this was him It was a sign for him that he would have success against the Persians. So he left the people of Jerusalem and the Israelites alone and made his way towards the Persians. Whether or not that account is historical or accurate, one thing we can know for certain that is factual, Alexander never conquered Jerusalem. There was no war there, even though he was in the neighborhood. Some might see that as just a funny little detail. But no. Consider point one. God is sovereign. And so God was in his sovereignty protecting his people. Jesus protects his people. He says in John chapter 10, verse 28 speaking about him and his relationship to his people, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Look at our third area where Jesus is superior to Alexander. We find it in verse 9. Jesus is superior because point number three, he's the source of joy. 
He's the source of joy. Notice what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This verse is very familiar. We read it in our scripture reading this morning. It is the... It contains the prophecy of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on his Passion Week. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And here God is commanding, it's not an option, to rejoice, exceedingly rejoice, to shout aloud in your joy for this Savior. For this God. Why? Because of who Jesus is and what he will accomplish. All true joy finds its source in Jesus Christ. All other joy will be here today and gone tomorrow. But Jesus gives a joy that is eternal. That has no end. That will only build to the day we see him face to face. Even in our, our, our time of sorrows, it is the joy of God that can be our strength. All true joy finds its source in Jesus Christ. Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew this. She says in Luke 1.47, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Joy comes through having faith in Jesus. Romans 15.13 says, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing and having faith so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Joy comes through the words of Jesus. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus says this in John 17.13, But now I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The words that Jesus spoke was given to the disciples so that the joy of Christ would be in them. In fact, joy comes from abiding in Christ. John 15, 10 through 11. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be full. Point four. Jesus is righteous. He's righteous. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. He's righteous or just. He's perfect. In fact, Jesus is called the Lord, our righteousness. We see that in Jeremiah 23, 6. Why? Because Jesus is sinless. According to what it says in Hebrews, we have this high priest, Jesus, who is holy, he is innocent, he is unstained, he is separated from sinners and exalted to the heavens. His judgment is righteous. Jesus said in John 5.30, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' love is even righteous. Just. Hebrews 1.9, quoting from the Old Testament, speaking of Jesus, it says of him, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This righteous God who is sinless, who is just, reigns. Five, he's a savior. 
He's the Savior. Alexander was a conqueror. Christ is the one who conquers souls to save. How is he a Savior? To put it simply, you and I should know this and believe it. We're commanded. Jesus came, became a man because we of men strayed from God. We are born sinners and alienated from God, hostile to God, at enmity with God. And thus, deserving, because of his righteous justice, deserving of all wrath and condemnation for now to eternity. But God being a God of love and peace, God being a compassionate one, decided to become a man. To perfectly keep the law that we could not fulfill. That we have broken every single day of our lives. He kept it perfectly from childhood to his death. Perfectly loving God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And loving his neighbor as himself. He kept the law which we couldn't keep. And then he lays down his life to pay the penalty that we can't bear. The payment for our sins. The penalty for our sins. Because the wages of sin is death. And so God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross our sin was imputed or placed upon Christ. He paid the penalty. And by believing he gives us his perfect life. So when God the Father sees us, He doesn't see the laws that we broke. He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus. Because of all this, and to prove it all to the world, He rose from the dead, conquering death, and giving us the hope that we too in Him may conquer death and be having eternal life. Because we do not serve a dead God, we serve a God who is alive and mighty to save. For there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Why? Because there's no other name given amongst men by which we must be saved. He is the Savior. Not a Savior, the Savior. Point six of Jesus. He's humble. He's humble. See this also in verse 9. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Early in the Jewish history, it was okay to ride on a donkey. But by the time of Solomon, kings rode horses. We see that from Jeremiah 17, 25. It was preposterous for a king to ride a donkey. And so in fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, Jesus here is displaying his humility. This is further seen in just his life. He gave up the riches of heaven to come down here to give it all up. And he said in, in Matthew 8.20, the foxes have holes, the birds in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. And when we get to the, the, the mountaintop of this thought, of the humility of Jesus, his Humbleness, his humbling himself, we find that in Philippians chapter 2. It says this let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who though he is in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped. But he made himself. Nothing. Nothing. A king becoming a pauper. The one who is to be served by all creation to bend the knee and serve sinners. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself to being obedient to the point of death even the cruel death on a cross. Never in the whole history of mankind has one so high humbled himself and became 
so low. And lastly, Jesus is a victor. He's the victor. He has the victory. We see this in verse 10. Zechariah, as you look at verse 10, moves on. From the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. And the rest of the chapter is really about that, but I just want to focus on verse 10. In the second coming, he will come and victoriously reclaim this earth and renew it. Jesus will bring an end to war by fighting, by winning the ultimate battle. He will come again, not on a, not on a mule, not on a donkey, but on a white horse. And he will speak judgment from his mouth, and the blood of his enemies will splatter his garments as he treads the winepress of the fury and wrath of God Almighty. He will take Satan and he will bind him. And after even Satan is released, he will destroy him, sending him to hell forever and ever and instituting a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will reign forever. That's our hope. That's our Christ. Before moving on, just compare and contrast this. Sovereignty. Alexander, not completely sovereign. In fact, when he got to India, he wanted to continue further east, but his army rebelled. They wanted to go home. I kind of understand that after fighting for over 10 years, wanting to see home. Jesus, completely sovereign over heaven and earth, physical and spiritual. Protector of his people. Alexander's kingdom wasn't protected. It was conquered by the Romans after he died. He didn't live to protect his people. Jesus, his kingdom is eternal and his people are secure. (laughs) Source of joy. Alexander produced fear and sorrow. Grief over the people he conquered. Jesus, those who Jesus conquers, he conquers by his love and are filled with unspeakable joy. Righteousness. Alexander was not a righteous man. I leave out much of his life just because. It's just not appropriate to speak here this morning. Jesus, he's sinless. Five, Savior. How how much of a Savior was Alexander? He couldn't save himself from death. Jesus, he rises from the dead and is alive to save all who believe in him. Humility. Alexander, prideful, self-seeking. Jesus, lowly, meek. A servant, gentle, and victor. Alexander only won a portion of the world for a small amount of time. Jesus won people from every tribe, tongue, every race, and every nation eternally. And so that gives me to my third point. I call to decision. Alexander is a picture of the best this world has to offer. Do you serve the world and the things of this world? Where is your time? Where is your thoughts motivated on? Things on this world, things that do not please God. If you serve him as a king, what comes to my mind is what it says. In the book, Dante's Inferno, in the last layer of hell, on the doorpost it says, Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. If you serve this world as your king, as your source of joy and fulfillment, if you are placing trust in yourself or in things or in possessions or circumstances or anything else besides Jesus, you have no hope. unless you turn to Christ. And so, just like in the days of Joshua, the same could be said today. Choose this day whom you will serve. 
whether it be the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites and the land whose uh, land you are dwelling in, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so I ask you, how often do you talk to your king? How often do you pray versus watching TV, being entertained, reading other things? How often do you listen to him by, by being in your Bible, diligently studying the Scriptures, not just to gain information, but to gain a love for your Savior and to worship Him? What is the focus of your life? Whom do you serve? I say that to everyone, not just those who truly do believe or who don't believe, both sides. Where, are your, where is your life pointed? There's enough evidence from the things in life and in the times that we live in That God will judge. He will come quickly. He will be a thief in the night. That is stated. It is as solid as granite. You could take it to the bank. The real question is, where will you be when he comes?